Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. I saw a story the other day. It was Thursday. And I just was going through some, some notes. and came across this, that the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, a survey they released on the 26th of April of this year, entitled Ontario Student Drug Use and Health Survey, shows, listen to this, 18% of students, 18%, so almost one in five, reported they had seriously contemplated suicide in the past year. 59% of students depressed. 39% say their mental health is worse. And while this is an Ontario study, I imagine the picture in other provinces is likely similar. And with the new school year just around the corner, I thought we should speak about this. And our guest is uniquely qualified. Mark Hennick is a mental health strategist. He attempted suicide at 15 years of age, was saved by a stranger. We've talked to Mark about this, and we'll again. His TED Talk video about his suicide attempt has been watched millions of times worldwide. He served as the national spokesperson for the Canada-wide Faces of Mental Illness campaign for the Canadian Mental Health Association. His book and podcast are titled So-Called Normal, and Mark Hennick is the CEO of Strategic Mental Health Consulting. Coincidentally, World Suicide Prevention Day is just a few days away, September the 10th. Mark, thank you very much uh, for joining us. How do we address that one of five school students seriously contemplated suicide, essentially, in the last year? Kids! seriously contemplating suicide, almost one in five. Yeah, you know, Roy, thanks for having me, first of all, to have this really important conversation. And when you think about kids in particular, I mean, look at your average 10-year-old, uh, and a third of their life has been spent so far in a, in a global pandemic. So really their frame of reference, most of their memory that they have, uh, has been through this incredibly traumatic, unusual time, even though we're largely out of it now, at least in terms of the social restrictions. So we need to appreciate that, that kids, all they can really remember uh, of the last few years uh, has been a limitation to their social interaction and really high stress around them at all times. So it's almost expected. We've been expecting this wave of mental health problems and struggles to come all along, and now it's finally bearing fruit. One of the things that we've uh, talked about on this program, I think with you as well, is that when you're talking about somebody who is 10, 12, 15, 16 years of age, you're not talking about somebody who has a wealth of life experience, not somebody who has a, a whole um, uh, file, if you will, of experiences in life. It's a very small sample size of experiences. And the and you, you can speak to this from your own experience, I, I, I'm sure, that when when life becomes unmanageable and the future looks... Um, uncertain the response to that is i can't deal with it am i, am I close yeah. yeah you absolutely are and you're right i mean even adults though uh, i think have a, cer a certain present bias you know the things that we're experiencing today take precedence over stuff that we've experienced in the past and especially over the ability to to conceptualize or try to conceptualize what might happen in the future so we often think and especially if you're a kid we think that how things are right now are how they've always been and how they always will be. So if things are really hard right now, kids don't have a whole lot of frame of reference, as you mentioned. 
to, to think that it'll be any other way. So that's why it's so important for adults and role models in particular to inspire hope in kids that they don't know how to hope yet. Uh, so to be able to reassure them that, no, this is okay, you are resilient, you are strong, uh, and we can get through this. That, you know, that's a lot easier to do when the adults themselves are healthy too. And unfortunately, we're actually seeing declines in adult mental health as well. Yes, we are. How would you describe uh, or define seriously considering suicide? Because that's the term in the CAMH study, seriously considering suicide. Is it enough to occasionally think, I don't see the point of living any longer? Or is there far more engaged than an occasional stray thought in that direction? Yeah, look, I mean, suicidal thinking or just passive suicidal thoughts are actually a lot more common than people think. And we're so afraid to talk about this topic that not a lot of people realize that most people think about ending their lives at one point or another, uh, some more often than others. When it becomes more concerning is when they start to develop plans, when they start to obsess or ruminate on it or think about it more than they don't, uh, and then when they start to make attempts. We know that suicide attempts are one of the biggest predictors of later completed suicide. So that's why we, you know, I, it breaks my heart when I see stories of people who are actively suicidal going into or trying to go to hospital and then being turned away or needing to wait for 15 hours in the waiting room, as I did when I was a teenager. Because these are the kids that end up killing themselves. Uh, and that is, that is something that's a part of the system that we know how to fix. Uh, and it's a tragedy that people are dying so unnecessarily by suicide, kids especially. So, so kids are going to the hospital. Kids are reporting and presenting to medical uh, professionals and saying, I, I feel suicidal. I, or whatever the terminologies they use. And they're pushed aside. They're pushed into the, into the waiting line. Is that it? It absolutely happens, especially with young girls. They're seen as it's just a it's just a phase, or they're seen as being uh, attention seeking or being dramatic, uh, and sometimes they're turned away. But look, we know that uh, even including adults, uh, the majority of people who end their lives have actually talked to a healthcare provider within the 30 days before they ended their life. So this is not a pro it's not exclusively a problem that's all in the sick person's head that suicide is a public health issue, that this is a systemic problem that so many people are falling through the cracks. Can you share with us, please, and you've done this in the past, but can you remind us, please, of how the suicidal ideation began with you, when it began, and when you started to decide you, you were going to act on it? Yeah, this is so personal for me, and that's why I do it professionally now, because it's all I really know how to do is to draw from this deep personal well uh, of experiencing uh, suicidal ideation as a kid from as young as I can remember. I mean, I, I started trying to kill myself when I was only 12 years old, but I was thinking about it and, and, and ruminating on it for years before that point, probably as, as young as nine or 10 years old. Uh, and I was in and out of hospital. I was one of those high service users or frequent flyers, as they're known uh, 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 colloquially in the system, uh, who every time I went in and asked for more help, the less help it seemed that I got. I got seen as the boy who cries wolf. Uh, and I think that's why I kept escalating in my behavior and was in and out of hospital more than uh, half a dozen times. I was on more than a dozen medications over the course of four or five years. And if it wasn't for a stranger who, when I was 15 years old, pulled me off of the edge of a bridge while I was in the middle of a suicide attempt, I wouldn't be here today. That, that moment changed my life just to meet a stranger who could care about me uh, just because I was a human being. And that's, I think, why I've built the career that I have, to try to be like that stranger who saved my life. So you really need to pay attention to what uh, kids are saying 
and what their actions are, what they're doing, what they're telling you, what they're telling healthcare professionals, don't ever ignore it. I, I was hesitating to relate this experience, but, but I will, because I think it's really important, and important because you mentioned what happens when young people sometimes go to hospitals. Uh, I was sitting in for, um, for a host uh, in Alberta a few years ago, and there was a story of uh, a young man who'd gone to the to uh, to hospital, and he presented as having suicidal thoughts. Mm-hmm. And apparently, he had uh, he had done this previously, and uh, they they put him alone. In, they put him in a room by himself. Yeah. And uh, and went in and checked on him uh, every hour or so. And after a while, he asked for a, a note, a piece of paper, and a pencil. So they provided him a piece of paper and a pencil. Hmm. And he wrote a suicide note, and then he took his own life in the hospital. Yeah. And I will never forget, the uh, his mom called into that program after we were talking about it, because it was a, a leading news story, and I will never forget speaking to his mother. And I do believe, I do hope, that that phone call from his mother that day will have made a difference with uh, with people who had similar thoughts or similar concerns or or were not taking someone seriously but it's one of those moments mark you never forget yeah and you know that's those moments are actually more common than people realize too that a significant number of suicides happen in the hospital where you think it would be the least possible to do um, but there have been promising initiatives like one called the Zero Suicide Movement, which have been focused on reducing suicide in healthcare settings. Uh, and that really focuses on treating the depression. Uh, that's, un- that's often an underlying factor. But also, like you mentioned here, too, sharing the stories of the, of the collateral damage. That really impacts people. You know, when, when you're suicidal, so much of that stuff just fades away. You're not able to really appreciate what you're doing and who you're truly going to be hurting because you're sick. But I think if we can break through and we can really let people know that they're loved, that they're cared about, that they do matter uh, before they die, uh, then that's what makes all the difference. I think that's what saves lives. Yeah. Mark, I want to ask you about so-called normal in a moment. But when you have 60 percent, six out of 10 students saying they are depressed, how do you think a school-age student would define being depressed? What does that mean to them? Yeah, you know, we have so much more awareness now around what mental health and mental illness actually are. That most studies have shown that millennials and younger, Gen Z and younger, uh, are much more likely to self-identify that they have a mental health problem or illness because they, they often know the diagnostic criteria. Uh, and they're also much more likely to reach out for help, to talk to their doctor, to tell a parent, a teacher. Um, that's all good news. But it does mean that it does make the numbers uh, tick up a little bit. So a kid who might be struggling with depression, very often we see persistent sadness. You know, depression and sadness aren't the same thing, but it's a matter of degree, intensity, and duration. Uh, So persistent sadness, very often they'll be less interested in the things that they used to be interested in. There's very commonly difficulty with attention. And there's all sorts of physiological symptoms of depression as well. Uh, GI upset, nausea, uh, sleep and appetite are all affected. So generally what we see is a, a turning down or a literal depression across a number of different uh, physiological and psychological factors. Okay, 39% say their mental health has become worse in the preceding year. Are the 59% who say they were depressed... And the 39% who said their mental health has become worse possibly be in a mindset, I hope not, but could they be in a mindset to be influenced by the 18% uh, 
who admit to seriously considering suicide. You know, they very well could be. And I think this also points to the uh, fact that depression, like most mental health problems and illnesses, the vast majority, in fact, they're not exclusively neurological uh, or biological disorders. There's no question. They, the, we have, you know, 50 years of research to look at the biological underpinnings of mental illnesses. But our mental health is intrinsically tied with our social environment and with our, with our styles of thinking as well. Uh, so when our environment changes as dramatically as it has, it's going to have these kinds of impacts on our mental health. This is expected. That also helps us then to intervene in ways that aren't necessarily always and exclusively medical. You know, just stay on your meds or just go to hospitals. Some people do need that, but many don't. So that's why we need to be able to support psychotherapy. We need to support social interventions as well because they're evidence-based and they work. Okay. Now, your book and your podcast are titled So-Called Normal. Is, is there a normal, um, and, and why so-called normal? Why did you call it that? Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what I want to exp- wanted to explore. What does normal mean? Because I had spent certainly all of my childhood and adolescence and well into my adulthood wishing that I was normal, wishing that I was like all those other people outside of me who seemed like they had all their stuff together, that, that everybody seemed like they were happy and healthy and normal. Then as I started to dig into it, especially with the podcast, but also in, you know, in researching my book and talking to my big Irish Catholic family, I realized that normal was such a subjective thing that we all have our own definition of it. And we don't actually even all necessarily agree on what normal is. We're just moving through the world on on a sort of a tenuous uh, balance of of what we think normal is. So I found that it's highly subjective uh, and what one person's normal is often isn't uh, what somebody else's is. So normal is what we want to be. I think it is. And it's what you're most, in some ways, comfortable being. All normal means it's your baseline. It's your set point. Uh, and it turns out what I've, what I've loved learning, both for myself and to help others, is that you can change your normal, that your normal isn't necessarily genetically or biologically determined, uh, at least not entirely, uh, that through small habit changes, through environmental changes, you can change your entire life and what you come to know as normal. So, uh, you know, my uh, seat of the pants definition of taking care of yourself in that sense is I've never cared what people think about me. I've never cared what people say about me. Never, ever, never crosses my mind. Couldn't care less. Can't do anything about it, so why should I worry about it? Is that just a, a fundamentally sound way of approaching things? I think to a degree, but also remember, Roy, we're social. Well, you know what I mean. Right? You know what I mean. Yeah, sure. I, I think everybody cares to a degree, uh, but how much you actually let it seep into your psyche and influence your decisions, that's something else. And this, you know, to tie it back to the conversation about children and adolescents that we we're having earlier, um, kids are particularly impacted what, by what other people think about them because they're just trying to figure out who they are themselves. Yeah, so the I way been... that I like to do that, the way that I like to do that is to figure out who I am, and when you know who you are, you're less susceptible to be influenced by the opinions of others. What I should have said is, I never cared if people think badly about me. If I'm not doing anything wrong, or I know I'm living up to my standards of, li- of life and my standards of behavior and my standards of ethics, then I don't really care whether people like me or not. Just. That's right. Yeah. And always being able to be flexible, to learn, to be teachable, to admit when you're wrong. I think that's all important parts of it, too, that come from that external feedback as well. Okay. So let's put it this way. Like yourself. Be be, be good to yourself. Like yourself. 
Nothing wrong. Like yourself and, and know yourself. Never settle uh, for for what you think it is right now always has to be. That doesn't have okay. to be that way. We're always growing and changing. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.